Well, good morning. I'm excited to be with you. Can you hear me if I'm walking away? Yes, maybe? Yes. Not as well as this. Okay. Well, uh, my plan this morning is to share briefly with you about my trip to Rwanda last month. There were two parts to that trip. So I was just in Rwanda for about six days. The first day was a, a Sunday, and I visited one of our mission partners, uh, Godfrey, who works at the Dufatanye organization. So I have a little bit that I'd love to share about that because that was every bit as impactful to me as was the actual GAFCON conference, which was the occasion for going to Africa. And so I'm going to assume almost no knowledge of what GAFCON is or even what necessarily maybe Anglican is. So my hope is to be able to cover these two things, the, looking at our mission partner at the DO and a, a brief overview of the GAFCON conference and then uh, open it up to some questions. And we have people far more experienced uh, who could answer questions a lot better. I'm going to do my best, but if I need to call on help, I will phone a friend. So uh, let's just jump right in. So hopefully this works. Maybe. All right. Great. So this is uh, where I was in Africa, right? You can see right in the middle of the continent in many ways. And the Dufatanya organization was about a three-hour drive from Kigali, the capital, down to uh, this city called Nyanza. And Nyanza, you can see it more closely down here. It's a, it, Rwanda's called a land of a thousand hills. I should have known that before I went, but I got off the plane and just was dumbfounded at the myriads of hills and mountains. It was a beautiful country. But uh, driving from Kigali, it, was, it says two hours and ten minutes, but it really was about three and a half. It was about six on the way back, but that's a story for another time. Uh, but it was a circuitous route down uh, through the valleys and hills to visit our partner there. Uh, and my arrival, meeting Godfrey, I'll be honest, I was shocked because they treated me like I was a, a coming king. And I had barely met Godfrey when he came here for a couple months last uh, summer or last year. And so his staff all came out to greet me as well as hundreds of children. And they were singing and dancing and I was overwhelmed because you know they just greet us so well coming, coming over there. They had a bouquet of flowers that they gave me. I didn't really know what to do with it, but it uh, <laughs> just kind of held it there. But it was amazing, it was lovely. And so a bit of what they do, so they started, I didn't realize, I was ashamed of how little I knew of one of our mission partners that we pray for every Sunday when we talk about uh, prayer for Rwanda and the victims of genocide and AIDS. Well, that started about 20 years ago, Godfrey Karima started this as a, in gratitude to God, he went to this village of Nyanza and wanted to uh, share the gospel, and so they started teaching kids, and there were probably about eight or, eight or ten that gathered under a tree the first time, and the first thing that he realized was that poverty, uh, malnutrition, and the victim, all the repercussions of the genocide, so AIDS and um, some trauma, were pressing issues. Now, he was from Uganda, but he grew up, and, and Rwanda had spent some time there and fled during the genocide. Uh, they, so the, what they start doing is they, they wanted to teach the Bible and equip children to do the same to their peers. Uh, and they quickly realized along the way that they're going to have to meet some of these pressing needs like health, malnutrition, poverty. And so some of these things are just what they create. It's amazing. There were women who were elderly sitting on the floor. They invited me to kind of come in and, and make some of these baskets. Really, I made about maybe two lines around the way with the reeds on these baskets. All this art 
was just paper. And then up there you'll see plastic bottles that they're making you know, their trash into art. It was really beautiful. This was a, a hand-woven chair. Again, I, they treated me like a king, and I think they loved me sitting on this throne of sorts. But, don't uh, get used to it. No, don't worry. <laughs> I was very uncomfortable, and I quickly got up. So <clears throat> I got to pray over the children that were there, and of course they danced. They even brought me into dancing, and I won't show the video for that. You'll have to ask me another time. But they all thought it was hilarious. I realized later that it was their national dance that they were doing. And so, of course, I wasn't as good as they were in that, but I wasn't good. Even if I had time to practice, it would be embarrassing. But this was their playground. You can see it's pretty rudimentary. And uh, the, I've seen poverty like what I saw, just not nearly on this sort of scale. So like I said, it started under a tree, the, the Dufatane organization. And so every time they have a guest visitor come, they plant a tree in honor of that. And one of their ways of combating uh, malnutrition is developing sustainable farming and agriculture. And so planting trees, I'll, I'll get into more specifically what they do. But you, you probably can't see it. This is St. Philip's Church. So we have our own tree planted there in Nyanza, Rwanda. They also let me plant a, a Pastor Justin tree, which was really nice, but uh, they were, uh, I think, they must have thought I've never used any tools or anything like that before, but they were just impressed I was willing to get my hands dirty. I haven't used that many tools, to be honest, so it was a minor miracle I did that. But this is what they do. So the, the village, the first uh, village that they were in, they've called it a village of hope, and to fight malnutrition, they, they give three things to each home in, in each village. They now have eight villages of hope. But in this first village, what they, what they started to do was they did three things. They gave two chickens, as you can see there. They gave a kitchen garden up there in the top. And they uh, gave ten banana trees. And they learned, they teach them how to harvest this themselves. You know, you can't just put it in the ground and expect it to, to grow. You actually have to fertilize it and do all sorts. And they coach them, they teach them how to do this. And uh, from that, from the money they save from that, they can then invest uh, along the way. And so this... First Village of Hope has really become a hub where they, they grow all sorts of crops and uh, plants and, as you'll see, animals uh, that are, are then distributed to other villages. So it really serves as an outsourcing hub. I had to show this because when I uh, approached the World Missions team and, and shared a little bit about my time there, I, to my surprise, I found out they were partnering with Water Mission, I believe, to help give a... Um, yes. That's right. That's right. My apologies. So uh, water, obviously, we, we care deeply about clean water here at St. Philip's. And so this was one of the things. There's a water filtration system that they are going to uh, and basically uh, put in place here. For, uh, and one of the things that astonished me in my time there was this is all indigenous people, all locals doing, doing all the work, which is a great thing. So you can see, I don't know if this is a video. Oh, this is really poor. But the water just leaking out, right? And it, it is not very clean. But this is where the, the town water comes from. So they have cows, pigs, fish hatcheries, even in the middle of There were ponds, lakes that they had. And the government was so impressed by what they were doing, they helped fund some of the uh, fish hatchery equipment. So we even have crawfish that are right here in the middle. I felt like I was in the bayou of... Louisiana, they had all sorts of um, animals and, and fish and whatnot 
cod, tilapia, I believe, that they were able to, to grow and, and harvest for the village. And so, again, like I said, they would save up money from, from the gift that they would uh, be given each person in the village, and then they can invest in a pig, or uh, a cow was really expensive, but a pig or a goat, and then from that you get fertilizer, which then fertilizes the uh, plants that you're planting around your house, and they come alongside and they start coaching uh, people who really catch the vision and, and make it as sustainable. Then those people become ambassadors in their own towns. So after visiting that first village of hope, we went out to a, probably the most poor part of, um, definitely the poorest part of the trip that I went to, about four hours away from the capital where I was staying. And it, it was pretty eye-opening. So what, I loved how they, they brought me in touch with people that they were actually serving. And this woman was uh, making dinner, just cutting potatoes. And so, again, they were kind of impressed I knew how to peel potatoes. I said, there are few things I know how to do in a kitchen, but peeling potatoes, I think I can do that. But I don't know if you can see, it's not super clear. These almost look the size of radishes. These are potatoes. And Godfrey would say, this is a sign of, of hunger and malnutrition. They don't let the, the crops come to full harvest because they're so hungry. And so this was the one regular sized potato. She gave it to me and I was just barely trying to scrape off the skin because uh, they're, they're quite hungry. Now this was a typical home that they lived in and this astonished me. I thought this was you know, where they kind of needed things in the kitchen or that sort of thing. But this served as a kind of hybrid between a kitchen and a bathtub, these uh, pieces of stone right here. So that's the level of uh, hygiene and cleanliness that, that we were witnessing. So one of the really encouraging things that I saw, the work they're doing is actually transforming many of the communities there. This man right here introduced me. It's his family on the left with his wife in the middle and the seven children. And he caught this vision for, for planting and sustaining the growth. And so he had, it was like the Garden of Eden around his little house. And so on the side of this hill, we had, uh, it wasn't a pear, it kind of looks like a pear up there, but this is green peppers, hot peppers, all sorts of plants that he was producing. And so they were really investing in coming alongside and, and helping him grow as many different crops. And then he became obviously a coach and an ambassador to those in his village. I love the way, I mean, this is almost life-size. This beet down here that he was growing was just tremendously large. And the cabbage as well, I mean, it was, it was bigger than our, our head. It was a, uh, to me, a sign of, even in this extreme poverty, you see glimpses of God's abundance coming through and the good work that, that really you and, and I, we help um, through, through our partnership with Godfrey and those in the Dufatanye. So... Uh, I was struck because I was going straight from this to the GAFCON conference where there's Anglicans from all over the world, and I confess that I really didn't know much about our mission partner in, in Rwanda, but wanted to do my best to help network with anybody there that could actually help. And uh, there's ways, you know, they're drafting always proposals, funds, or something they always need. I, I would be interested, perhaps, if there's a team from St. Philip's who wants to go, and uh, they're always looking for that. They're any sort of construction, and we can kind of help uh, some folks in, in Rwanda have them help construct it, but we can provide some of the labor as well. I think it would be a, a good effort. Being able to see this in person was 
was, I was so grateful that Martha Vedder helped set it up for me to go because I could have just stayed right in the very nice capital city, very, probably the nicest hotel in the whole country of Rwanda, but to venture out, meet one of our mission partners in their village, seeing their work, it was probably the most satisfying part of the entire trip and it was just this little 10 hour window. So the rest of the, the time was devoted to GAFCON. And right before the conference, I got to visit the genocide memorial there in Kigali. I don't know if you can see, these, this is 250,000 graves, a mass, I mean, over a million people in the genocide from 1994. And these are actual coffins. So there were about 14 stone tablets there, uh, tables, that were, I can't imagine how deep they were to have 250,000 bodies buried there. But it was a very sobering way to, um, to see the, the horror that really wasn't that long ago. I mean, 1994, I, I was at least alive, uh, but I was young. For many of you, you could probably remember that just like it was yesterday. And the amount of uh, years gone by is really not that much. And so it was, uh, it was shocking to me that they've come so far in a short period of time, but they're still, I believe, wrestling with some of the tensions uh, far less spoken today than, than it was then. But really a sobering thing to, to witness. Now, uh, the actual conference itself, the rest of my time was spent in the Kigali Convention Center. And I want to explain a little bit why this mattered so much to me to be able to go. I don't know how I got the invitation to go with the bishop, but I was one of about six clergy and several laity who went. This man was the one who started GAFCON and or was one of the major spearhead uh, leaders of the GAFCON uh, first conference in 2008. His name's Archbishop Peter Jensen. And interestingly enough, in 2017, he came to the seminary that I was studying in. Westminster Seminary was predominantly Presbyterian. So as one of just a handful of Anglicans, I got the good fortune to go pick him up from the airport, have lunch with him, get to know him. And he was, it was 2017, so he was working to put on the third GAFCON conference the following year, 2018. And I'll be honest, I had no idea about the global, political, uh, ecclesiological uh, relationships going on in the world. And I had a wonderful lunch with him, but what I took away was he, ch he really challenged me. He looked at me and he said, you know, Justin, this, it's great that you're being able to study and, and focus on where you are here in the United States, but I want to encourage you to more or less get your head out of the sand and begin to see what's happening in the world because there's things that are happening that, that we need to stand for. And I think for us, and that, that was all too true back here in the Diocese of South Carolina and the Anglican Church in North America, I'll share more about how that came about in part because of GAFCON. But I took that challenge to heart and it was interesting that six years later, there I was at this very GAFCON conference, and I got to, to see him, and he remembered me. I told him the story. I said, thank you so much for, for that encouragement, and I'm delighted to be able to be here, and I have, in some ways, gotten my head out of the sand. But let me uh, tell you what, from my, my hope is to spend about 10, 15 minutes just talking about what is GAFCON, what happened at this last GAFCON conference, why is that so significant. Hopefully, you'll begin to see what's happened in our diocese, in our denomination here in the United States is there's a lot of overlap with what has happened uh, in GAFCON and particularly this last GAFCON. So, so what is GAFCON? Well, this is the first gathering of GAFCON. <laughs> um, no, when people hear GAFCON, they think of something like Star Trek. GAFCON simply means Global Anglican Future Conference. 
and how it became important. Well, basically, uh, you, some of the background, some of the context, uh, I'm going to share a little bit of the story of, of why GAFCON started in 2008 and what this past GAFCON was about. But before we do that, again, I'm going to assume no knowledge. Some of these things are going to be really important in the story. So the Lambeth Conference, just a show of hands, who's heard of that? Great. Who, who actually could be able to tell me what it is? <laughs> Yay, all right. I, maybe, I'm not going to call on you, but uh, hopefully more actually know what it is. It began, uh, it, it's every 10 years around thereabouts, and it's in the Lambeth Palace in, in England. And it was, it's called by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So it, beginning in 1867, that was the first Lambeth Conference. Uh, that's going to be important in the story, and I'll, I'll explain why in a bit. Anglican Communion. That's just simply all of those churches who are in fellowship uh, or who have some sort of heritage with the Church of England, historically have been in fellowship with the See of Canterbury. A primate, that is another, uh, not a primate, but a primate. A primate is the chief archbishop or bishop of a province of the Anglican family of churches. And so those are going to be important things when I explain uh, what is GAFCON, how it came about. And the last thing I want to define is, uh, I've heard the term instruments of unity or communion before. So as churches, as basically the, empire, the British Empire began to expand, you have more churches throughout the world that are connected to the Church of England. How in the world do you maintain a communion, a fellowship, with churches from around the world. What does that look like? Is it, uh, it's not, we don't want to just be some sort of non-denominational, independent. What does, what does that communion, what does that fellowship look like? Well, the, the historical solution was you have these four ways of showing that union, showing that communion together. The Archbishop of Canterbury served as one of those instruments. He was kind of uh, a visible sign of the unity of the Church of England. Then you had the Lambeth Conference, which the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury called. I'm going to go through each of these, but this is the Archbishop of Canterbury currently, Justin Welby. He has been the Archbishop since 2013. We have the Lambeth Conference, again, every 10 years. Notice this, you'll, you'll start to hear a common theme. Each of these instruments of unity in some way are controlled or tied to the Archbishop of Canterbury. So the Lambeth Conference was called invited by, uh, you, or if you're a bishop in the Anglican communion around the world, you are invited by the Archbishop of Canterbury. So the Archbishop has that kind of calling or convening power. Third instrument of unity was called the primates meeting. Again, these are all the, the chief archbishops or presiding bishops across the 41 provinces of the Anglican communion. A province is uh, a, more like a, a larger locale than just a diocese, right? A diocese we have the ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America, is a province made up of a lot of dioceses. But notice the Archbishop of Canterbury chairs the meetings of the primates, which are held at varying, varying intervals around the world. Uh, the most recent one, I believe, was 2020. The Anglican Consultative Council. This is the fourth instrument of unity. It seeks to serve the needs of member churches in the Anglican Communion. It has laity, archbishops, priests, deacons, uh, and bishops. And meetings take place approximately every three years. And the current chair was actually, or is actually Paul Kwong. Um, I might be, 
I want to say that is outdated and that the, the current ACC chair, nope, nope, never mind. That's correct. That's correct. Sorry about that. So um, a brief history of the Anglican Communion. So I want to point out that going back to the 1860s, this first conference, we had somebody down in South Africa named uh, Archbishop John Williams Colenso, who was basically heretical in many ways. He, he denounced the doctrine of hell. He was a biblical scholar who pretty much renounced the first five books of the Old Testament, saying they're not really authoritative, they're, they're not really accurate. Uh, and the question was, well, how do we discipline this, this Bishop Colenso? And that was really the impetus for the first Lambeth Conference in 1867. And they got in the, the outworking uh, of that conference was unfortunate because they basically didn't take him out of his role as bishop. And so this has been an issue of what happens when people start denying the faith. Uh, how do we actually shepherd our flock, our communion together? And it began to have a, a problem even going back to 1867. But fast forward about 100 years in the United States. Uh, bishop James Pike, he was a bishop of California. Here's another instance again of uh, somebody who was essentially heretical. He was known for being a chain smoker and an alcoholic. He had lived through two failed marriages. He had cohabitated with his secretary, uh, who eventually committed suicide after an argument with him. He was married a third time, but one of the things that he did was not just it was progressive in his uh, ethics, but he, his Christian beliefs, quote-unquote Christian beliefs, were denying the virginity of Mary, Again, denying hell and denying the Trinity. These are basic core doctrines of what it means to be a Christian. This is what we cover in the Creed every Sunday. And uh, notice here, none of this uh, is about sexuality to begin with. That will become the presenting issue today. But this fundamentally goes back to Scripture. What does Scripture say? What is its place and authority in the life of the church? And so yet again, like the Colenso controversy, uh, Bishop Pike though he was brought up on charges, he, uh, they said essentially the, the end, in the end the church decided it was not in the denomination's best interests to pursue an actual heresy trial. Bishop John Spong, uh, this was fascinating. We, uh, he is known for his, especially his position on sexuality, but I want to point out again, none of this has to do with sexuality, but he published in 1998 the, his 12 points of reform. The first point said, theism as a way of defining God is dead. So therefore, most theological God talk is meaningless today. We need a new way to speak of God, he said. Secondly, uh, since God can no longer be conceived in theistic terms, it becomes nonsensical to seek to understand Jesus as the incarnation of a theistic deity. So the theology, Christology... The biblical story of the perfect and finished work of creation from which human beings fell into sin is pre-Darwinian mythology. That's number three. The virgin birth, as understood as literal biology, makes Christ's divinity as traditionally understood impossible. Uh, the miracle stories of the New Testament can no longer be interpreted in a post-Newtonian world as supernatural events performed by an incarnate deity. I'm not going to read the rest, but you, you get the picture. This is about very important... Uh, scriptural doctrines that uh, would eventually, today, the breaking point would be on the issue of sexuality. And so uh, I'll send those out later, but 
Um, something that was really important. So the Lambeth Conference, every 10 years, they met in 1998, and it was a, a pretty good meeting from what I hear. It was a positive, uh, particularly this Resolution 110 on human sexuality. What you'll notice there is it upholds the traditional view of men and women and marriage, that marriage was between one man and one, one woman. It recognizes, under point C here, that there are many among us who experience themselves as having a homosexual orientation. Many of these are members of our church, of the Church of England, and are seeking the pastoral care, moral direction of the church, God's transforming power for the living of their lives and the ordering of relationships. We commit ourselves to listen to the experience of homosexual persons, and we wish to assure that they are indeed loved by God. This is all really good teaching, and, I, and this is important because the difference between sin and temptation, right? So just because one is tempted by something does not mean it's actual sin. It's indulging in those thoughts or practices that is when it becomes sin. So this was in 1998 at the Lambeth Conference, the worldwide gathering of Anglican bishops, and they produced a very orthodox statement on human sexuality. But then uh, we... So I gave you a brief overview that there were problems for centuries, really. But we started to see a lot of stuff happening. Ever since 1998, everything ramps up quickly. You have essentially what is written on the books in Lambeth 110 in 1998 is basically overlooked in practice. The Anglican Church in Canada then says that, speaks of the integrity and the validity of same-sex unions. 2003 in the United States, this was really the, the turning point. And I say all this, if you know this, great, but I, I was in 2013, 16 years old. I was not thinking about this, but I was growing up with it happening all around. And this is actually really important for us in, in, because our church has come out of this in many ways. We're a part of, of what happened here. So 2013 in the United States, uh, an openly non-celibate gay uh, person named Gene Robinson was consecrated as bishop. And that sent an uproar throughout the entire worldwide Anglican communion. The, the bishops in what is known as the Global South, predominantly Africa, Asia, South Africa, or South America, they were the ones who held to a, a traditional Orthodox view. And they then said, to the, the Western, you know, Canada, United States, the Episcopal Church in the United States, and the Church of England, what you guys are doing is defeating the very thing you came and brought us in the scriptures. You're going against what you uh, taught us, and we now want to hold you to those very scriptures. And we started seeing calls to repentance then. Um, there was a moratorium. This was a, a positive thing. And if you want a more extended history, I found there's this giant document up here um, that was produced by one of the presenters at GAFCON. I found it really helpful. I'm giving you just the broad overview. But in 2004, there was, let's not ordain or consecrate anybody uh, or create any kind of public liturgies for non-celibate homosexuals in ministry. That did not last very long because what we saw in all of a sudden 2008 is coming. That's the next Lambeth Conference after the 1998 one. And since 1998, when they, it was good Orthodox teaching on the books, practically everybody, a lot of people in the West, start disregarding that and ordaining, consecrating, uh, teaching that was contrary to Scripture. And so 
these people from around the world who wanted to hold to an orthodox understanding of the, of the Bible and its place said, we can't go to Lambeth. We need to do something else. And so 2008 was the first GAFCON conference. That was the first, th and, and it, instead of going to Lambeth, what if the bishops who wanted to hold to uh, the historic teaching once delivered to the saints, well, let's go to Jerusalem, they said. In 2008, that is where the first GAFCON conference met. And since then, there's been several, there was uh, five, GAFCON meets every five years. The second one was in Nairobi. The third one was in Jerusalem. And this past one, uh, this year, the fourth GAFCON was in Kigali. <clears throat> and notice the moratorium in 2004, let's not produce any liturgies that, that, uh, about non-celibate homosexuals in ministry. That ended just five years later. They continued to practice it. And um, so you started to see this rift. Now, what exactly happened? What I'd like to do is pass. Uh, so let me just draw. So the history of GAFCON was really important to me. Again, I grew up not really knowing any of that. And the first day of this conference was devoted in large part of retelling this story, that 10-minute story I just told you of how GAFCON came about and the fact that it's a movement that's devoted to having biblical orthodoxy in the Anglican communion. The rest of the conference was coming together to try and produce a, a statement or a commitment, which is called the Kigali Commitment, that actually, um, it, what does it mean for us today in light of all these things? So I would say the, last, the first three GAFCON conferences primarily said this is what we stand for, this is right. This one was unique, this GAFCON 4, because it started to say directly, you know, after decades of calling on repentance over specific actions that have violated Lambeth 110, we are now, basically after 20 plus years, at the end of our rope. And this wasn't a rash, a, or a, a brash, or a trite decision. This was something that was very long-suffering, and it's something that pains what I noticed there, at the, when this was produced, it was like a funeral. And if you were here uh, not that long ago when we left as a diocese from the Episcopal Church, it felt like that. I was interested, but that was, for me, a relatively long time ago. It was about 10 years ago that we left. And so we've had time in the United States, those who were in the Anglican Church in North America, to, to grieve some of this. Those brothers and sisters from countries around the world who basically committed to no longer recognize the Archbishop of Canterbury as uh, having any authority until he repents, the grief set in at this conference. And it was really interesting. I, I, I just wasn't prepared for that, but it made sense. So um, I want to say, too, before we look at this commitment in, uh, briefly, that the Anglican Church in North America was created because a lot of the, the bishops who helped to start GAFCON came together and said, you know, what about these Orthodox people who are Anglicans where they're in a diocese or a province that is basically teaching things that are antithetical to Scripture? We need to provide oversight. We need to provide some sort of um, governance for them. And so they consecrated bishops and they created, essentially, they helped create the Anglican Church in North America, which is what we are now a part of. But I want to I note just a few things briefly. It's, it's short here. But uh, so 
each day we started with a teaching from Colossians. And then we spent times breaking out, confessing our own sin, and repenting specifically of our own sin. That was a really important feature of the conference because we're not just saying, oh, you sinners over there need to repent. We need all of us are under the authority of Scripture. So every morning, that's what we did. We heard God's word read and preached, and then we repented ourselves. Uh, Let me turn over to page two, and you'll see here the current crisis. This is pretty intense language. So it says, despite 25 years of persistent warnings by the Anglican primates, repeated departures from the authority of God's word have torn the fabric of the communion. These warnings were blatantly, deliberately disregarded, and without repentance, this tear cannot be mended. And the most recent thing happened just in February of this year where the General Synod in the Church of England decided to welcome proposals by the bishops to enable same-sex couples to receive blessing, uh, God's blessing. And note it says, it grieves the Holy Spirit and us that the leadership of the Church of England is determined to bless sin. So skip down to where it says the failure of, Arch, of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the other instruments of communion, those instruments of unity. In, in short, because what do you do when the unifying figure of the church has forsaken scripture? That's the presenting problem of our crisis today. And if you remember, those four instruments of unity, they all are tied to this one man, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so this is more or less stating that we have no confidence any longer in the Archbishop of Canterbury, that they have said for years that we need the way ahead, and this is at the very bottom of page two, the way ahead for the Anglican communion is to learn to walk together in good disagreement. So the, the bishops at GAFCON said, we reject the claim that two contradictory positions can be, both be valid in matters affecting salvation. We cannot walk together in good disagreement with those who've deliberately chosen to walk away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The people of God walk in his ways, walk in the truth, and walk in the light, all of which require that we do not walk in Christian fellowship with those in darkness. Successive archbishops of Canterbury have failed to guard the faith by inviting bishops to Lambeth who've embraced or promoted practices contrary to scripture This failure of church discipline has been compounded by the current Archbishop of Canterbury, who has himself welcomed the provision of liturgical resources to bless these practices contrary to Scripture. This renders his leadership role in the Anglican Communion entirely indefensible. And so it goes on to call him once more to repentance, to uh, appropriately care for those in our flock who are are feeling same-sex attraction. How do we... You know, I deal with college ministry. We see this all the time. There are those who recognize even their same-sex attraction. uh, They feel it to be true, and yet they believe what Scripture teaches, that it's clear that it's sinful, and not to indulge into those behaviors or inclinations. How do we care for those? That's a really important question for our church, and we need to respond pastorally appropriately. Skip over to page four. So this was a call then. So if the instruments of unity and the archbishop himself of Canterbury has no longer a leadership role until he repents, what do we do? Well, we must reset what it means to be a communion. 
Now, this is not just a handful of people saying this. You'll notice at the, that first paragraph, those at the GAFCON 4 represented 85% of the worldwide Anglican communion. 85%. Roughly 70 million, I believe. And so what that looks like is to be determined. But what is clear, it says, this is an urgent matter at the bottom of page 4. It needs adequate and robust foundation to address the legal and constitutional complexities of various provinces. The goal is that Orthodox Anglicans worldwide will have a clear identity, a global spiritual home of which they can be proud, and a strong leadership structure that gives them stability and direction as global Anglicans. In short, it is not just an institutional relationship with an archbishop. It's the doctrine of scripture that binds us together it's our faith in Christ that forms our fellowship. And that was what was committed, and whatever sort of structures they come up with, um, we pray that they happen quickly. But the test, and you're probably wondering, well, how do we know if all of this is not just strongly worded statements? Well, when the Archbishop of Canterbury then calls bishops from around the world to come to Lambeth again or to, to try to repair, until he repents, my hope, and I think the hope of many, in the Anglican Communion is that they would indeed put their money where their mouth is, which is to not seek to follow and, and call that we have any sort of fellowship until such repentance occurs. So I have just a couple moments for questions, but I hope that was helpful. It was a great conference for me. Yeah, Drew. What, um, were there any representatives of the church of England? Yes, yes, there were several, and those actually were the the, the there were a couple presenters, actually, from the Church of England. And those, as I mentioned, who were grieving the most, it was like us 10 years ago. The, those in the Church of England, the, that was specifically the call I heard from many, that we need to provide ways to support those Orthodox brothers and sisters in the Church of England who are recognizing this shift that they're a part of a church that is ignoring Scripture at this point. Yes. Yes. Largely, uh, the Episcopal Church in the United States, Church of Canada, Church of Australia, um, Church of England. That, that's a large part of that 15% or those um, provinces that I just named. So 70 million is 80, I can't do the math. Um, basically, divide uh, 70 million by 85% and you'll get whatever the Anglican communion is. <laughs> Yes. Well, I was grateful that. And I'll end with this. It costs us. Yes, we. Many of us have lost buildings and properties. Maybe our reputations have been tarnished in social settings. There are those around the world who suffered far more, greater cost. Those are the ones who get it and are standing. And that makes me really proud to be an Anglican in this large global body that is seeking to follow Jesus Christ and to uphold the scriptures. So um, I'm happy to talk. Uh, I unfortunately need to dismiss us. I'll be sticking around. Please, please ask me. Um, I'll stick around for a little bit, and then we've got to go. But you can always, I'm happy to talk more. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that on this Pentecost Sunday, we remember the birth of the church. And we thank you that Jesus promised that the gates of hell will not overtake your people. So we ask that on this day as we remember the, the foundation of our, um, our origins, that it's the word of God that gave us birth by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you may indeed 
bring those to repentance in our fellowship, that we would be united in your Son under the authority of Scripture, and that you would indeed call all men to yourself. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.